Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Is that too early? Yeah, it's a smidge for some of you and about a month late for the weirdos. Uh, <laughs> maybe. I listened to uh, my, my radio station in my car for the last week and a half now has been on 99.9, which is... <laughs> their representatives are here. And I heard a song yesterday, one of my favorite songs, an older song by Andy Williams. It's the most wonderful time. Do you believe that? Yeah, some of you do. Some of you are shaking your heads. Some people look at that, that song and want to gag because it's not the most wonderful. It is not a, a season full of warm fuzzies. Um, to some of you, the season reminds you of the bad things, the broken things. Because after all, Christmas has a reputation, right? It has, a, it has a characteristic part of it that perpetuates this idea that everything's great and people are great and people get along and the world is good and, and then you look around and maybe it's not. Maybe it's not for you and so the holidays do just the opposite to you. Maybe you went on those uh, YouTube um, videos from Black Friday shopping, wonderful nature of human beings to kill each other over crockpots. That's a great idea. Um, <laughs> So do you feel anxious at a time like this, a holiday? I know this. I've talked to enough people that it's not rare. It's not rare that the season that we're in, in fact, people take surveys of this. It's, it tends to be the time of the year where most people experience, there's a growing number of people that experience sadness and depression at this time of the year. And they take surveys on why. And clearly, there's more than probably what they can figure out, but, you know, the, the crazy manic nature of finance and spending and debt and blah, blah, blah that goes with the whole materialistic bashing down doors to buy a gift that nobody wants that you can't afford, that kind of thing. That sounds crazy. There is the stress of having to be super busy, be everywhere, do everything, and please everybody that comes with the holidays that kind of stresses some people out. There is a loneliness that has a tendency to surface at a time like this, like no other time. Um, in fact, they say that 40, 43% of Americans are single right now in our culture, which would just emphasize maybe I don't have somebody because you're supposed to have somebody at Christmas. I don't have somebody. Or... It's a season to grieve because, after all, it reminds you of what you don't have because you lost somebody. And so Christmas, when it's supposed to be this warm reminder of family and longevity, it just reminds you of all the hurt and the loss. So you don't look forward to it. Um, I'm not, by the way, trying to create a Debbie Downer for Christmas, but it's reality, right? I'm trying to set up this series. Um, or, or Christmas reminds us of the broken relationships, which come so naturally to sinners like, like us. People we don't talk to anymore. We've navigated or managed things and wounds with distance. And Christmas forces us, right, to have to hang around some people we don't like called family sometimes or to avoid them altogether. And so there's problems with that. Things like divorce and like things we do and we watch our children have to respond to which family am I supposed to go to? I have to go to all of them. Man, this is no fun. And so, not to make it, like I said before, too heavy for us, but I think there is a reality to deal with. That some of you maybe unwillingly to admit it or to verbalize it maybe because of the culture is trying to tell you that it's the most wonderful time of the year, you just kind of keep all the feelings of this is not really that to me under wraps. You keep it uh, down low. 
And so um, that's why we decided this Advent to talk about fixing Christmas. Not like I have the key to fixing Christmas, but we've kind of subtitled it. What's, what's broken with Christmas is really what's broken with us. If there's anything you don't like about your experience in the holidays, more than likely, it's connected to you or someone that's done something to you. There's a version of sin in this, right? Sin. When, when people don't love as God loves and don't care as God cares and we experience that between one another, it doesn't matter if we're related to each other or not. We have wounds, we have pains, we have, we have hurts. And so um, I think that's the way it works out for us. It's a dark time for some and so we're gonna deal with it. In the next four weeks today, we're gonna talk about broken relationships, specifically how God wants us to deal with that and that is with forgiveness. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, stress and anxiety that are classic in a time like this. We're going to talk about the peace of God that comes through his grace, that grace is really what frees us from all the anxiousness and striving that, that a season like this potentially does to us. We're going to push back on consumerism and materialism, and we're going to talk about the gospel's generosity to us, and therefore, it's reflection of generosity to a world, and we're going to talk about what it is to be a giving people. We're going to talk uh, the final week about and, and I use this word to describe my experience with Christmas. It seems so plastic to me, so fake to me, the, the, the image that we live in, the culture that we're in. We're going to talk about the glory of God, that there's a reason for Christians to celebrate at a highest, highest level. The glory of God is why we live. The glory of God is ours through Christ. We have the greatest opportunity for celebration of anybody that walks on the planet through Christ. And yet we have this constant reminder in a culture, in a season like this, ah, the plastic isn't good enough. And if you strive in Christmas, if a season isn't the most wonderful time of the year, then you're seeing a clear picture of what the gospel offers. It says to you nothing else will please you and that Jesus will ultimately satisfy you. That in total is what we're going to do during Advent. And so today, um, I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Maybe I do that every Sunday. I don't know. But um, today, we're going to talk about the broken things, the broken relationships, right? We're going to talk about God's solution specifically called forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages, um, not necessarily in a row right now, but turn to Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 and 13. This is the Apostle Paul instructing the church. Let me give you a little background on what's going on here. Paul has um, and is talking about the ramifications of what Christ does to us and in us and, and through us. And he compares it and contrasts it to the formal life and he says that the way you used to live and the way you used to walk and the way you used to talk and treat each other and navigate and manage your problems, put those off. And that's the phrase that he talks about, putting off those things of your former way of life. And then he uses this phrase to talk about what we do in Christ. And he says to put on, and this is what he says in verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So it's pretty clear here that here's how we normally navigate problems with each other, and that is unforgiveness. And so Paul just says to the church, here's what you do now, church, is what you do when Christ comes in you. You put on this nature of Christ, which is to forgive. That's how we're supposed to do it. But let me just admit what you're probably already thinking. That sounds too easy. Where do I put that on? How do I put that on? Because you have no idea what's been done to me. You have no idea how people have hurt me. And so um, this is a very tough subject. Everyone has been hurt at some time in their life, deeply hurt, friends, 
family, a spouse, a stranger. Could have happened yesterday, could have happened years ago, could be going on right now. You're in the midst of being hurt, and, uh, and so it's difficult. Hurt feels bad. And even as I talk about it, if you're like me, I sat in a sermon 30 years ago, and someone preached a sermon about forgiveness. Maybe it's the first time I ever listened, and a face popped up in my head. The person. And I, could, I didn't want to listen at that point. Once the person popped in my head, I was done. Like, you have no idea. I have a right to my hatred. How do I get out of here? That's kind of how I responded to it, okay? And so maybe that's you. Maybe the face or the faces have popped in your head of those who've done you wrong, and you don't want to listen anymore. I, I understand that. That's why this subject is difficult for us. Um, I think the command to forgive just might be one of the most difficult man, commandments in, in all of Scripture, and, and here's one of the reasons why. Because we are programmed, we are programmed to strike back. Let, let me put it in the best term possible. Let's say we're programmed for justice. Created in the image of God, God is a just God. There's a part of us when wrong is wrong, we know it's wrong, we want to make it right. And when it's done wrong to us, we want it to stop. We want it to be made right. And because we can't many times or don't many times engage in the process to make it right, we use another tactic, annihilation. And we separate ourselves from people. They are like dead men to us. I don't have to deal with them. Better gone than to respond, all right? And I've talked to enough people who deal with hurt and pain from other folks. And um, most of the time, we're more interested in finding an excuse to our unforgiveness than obeying God. And so we start the list. Hey, you should be forgiving. Like, nobody's not heard that before. This is not, this is not news to anybody here. But what happens is we yank out that long list and we shake it out like a Santa's list and it's, well, here's the reasons why I need to be bitter. Here's the reasons why. You don't know him, you don't know me, you don't know it. And so, therefore, we justify our, our disobedience. Well, if there are things like that in your life, if there are broken relationships in your life, and maybe there's a few of you that are, I just have to take you through the difficult process of seeing what God says about that. Again, none of it's gonna be brand new to you probably. Um, and that's specifically the way I'm going to deal with this, this subject matter today is we're going to talk about the absolutes of forgiveness, what God says about it, some specific passages. We're going to talk about the why to forgive. There's reasons why we should. We're going to talk uh, about the, the uh, realities of forgiveness, what it's like to be in the process of forgiving one another, and then the tools. How can we practically leave here ready to do something about this? So let's deal with the absolutes, God's call to forgive. It's clear. It's absolute, and there's no doubt about it. Let me just read to you some passages. You don't have to turn there. We'll put them up on the screen for you. I'm, I'm certain you'll be familiar. But in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus said this. For if you, give, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Mark chapter 11, he says this. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. Ephesians 4, verse 32, here's what Paul says, let 
all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Seems to me at this point we could all just close our Bibles and shut it down and leave because we know enough. God said it, right? What else do we need here? Um, let's just go get it done. But, but here's our reality. I've already stated it, but it's hard. For, forgiveness is, is really hard. There, there is a lot of us carrying unforgiveness. And just hearing that God commands us to forgive isn't going to change that. Plus, we already know that it's a command. That hasn't, that hasn't helped me. It hasn't moved the, the needle at, at all so far. And so we again whip out the list. You have no idea. And I understand that. Like horizontally, I can get in your shoes a little bit. I can understand it. And some of you have been hurt in deep, deep, deep ways. Ridiculous ways. But that does not negate the command of God to deal with sin that's been done to us. Very simple. Okay? There is only one reason, one biblical reason why we don't forgive. And I've been guilty, so I'm not pointing any judgmental finger on you. It's pretty simple. It's, it's this. Because we feel that what others have done to us is worse than what we've done to God. And so therefore, we're the ultimate judge in justice, and we feel like that's crossing the line. We don't have a gospel perspective on sin. We, we, we want all sorts of mercy and grace and love to cover our own failures that are constant, right? And we all have our list of things we've said a million times to God. God, I, I'm sorry for this. I promise I won't go there again. And you don't get through the week without saying it again and again and again. The sinner's experience with God's forgiveness is perpetual, ongoing, all the time, perfect covering. But somehow when someone hurts us, a sinner hurts a sinner, well, that goes to the top of the list. And that sin against me is greater than any other sin. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like you're concerned about the spot on their shirt when you're standing there naked. Okay? That is a bad, bad scene. You can see the problem, but you miss the issue. The issue is that we're all in our sin, okay? Let me prove to you, what, again, I think you're very familiar with. You can turn to this one as well. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is teaching on this idea of radical forgiveness that is um, never-ending. And he tells a parable to make his point, and it'll help us, I think, to recall it this morning. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read from verses 21 through 35. And this is a question that Peter asks, okay, of Jesus. In verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? In Peter's mind, he has just offered some super spiritual answer to the issue of forgiveness. Like, Lord, I get that you care about forgiving, man, and I could... Should I forgive like seven times? Like, would that be an extreme amount to you? Would that prove to you that I'm like you and love like you do and I get it like you do? And of course, Jesus' response was more radical. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That was not meant, by the way, to be a destination. Like once you get to 77, you're done. It was Jesus' way of saying unlimited, just ridiculous amounts of, of times to forgive. And then he tells this story to, to make his point. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me give you a perspective to talk about the extreme nature of what Jesus is saying. To them, a common worker in that day earned one denarii a, a day, okay? It took six 
1,000 denarii, 20 years of work to equal one talent. All right, are you tracking so far? 200,000 years if you earned one denarii a day to pay back 10,000 talents. Jesus was not suggesting that somehow you could get there or pay it. You'd be long gone and dead by then. The point that he was saying, it's a debt you couldn't pay. Ridiculous debt. Some have done the, like the English translation to the American dollar and said it's like, it's like $30 billion or something like that. Unbelievable amount of debt. Okay, back to 24. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So we're talking about uh, two and a half months worth of, worth of pay, which is payable. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will, will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had t- that had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? We don't need help with this illustration at all. That's why Jesus says it. Sinner, look at me for a second. We're all in this condition. All of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of the secrets, all the things people know and don't know about us, every bit of it, God has kept copious notes on and it was fully punished in Christ on the cross. You have been forgiven a debt you could never possibly pay. This idea of 10,000 talents is to tell us the story of our condition before a holy God can't get there. No man can climb a righteous ladder. No man can fix his problems. No man can work hard enough or pray hard enough or do good enough. You can't do it. And God in his benevolent kindness and his mercy and his grace extends to us. When we plead to him in repentance and faith, he gives to us what we can't get anywhere else. A clean slate. A totally clean and righteous slate. And so now, compare and contrast that beauty and that wonder and the glory of that forgiveness. And here we are debtors who've been wiped free of our debt walking around to people who owe us the equivalent of a sandwich and saying, pay up now, or I'm going to exclude you forever. In Jesus' mind, it's absurd for a sender to be that resentful and that unforgiving, okay? That's what his point is. So, so just to review just a little bit, we don't forgive because we forget or don't consider or, or don't believe in the seriousness of our offense. So we think somehow how people treat us rises to that or a greater level. Okay, make sense? Now let me give you the why to forgive. I think it's important. Let me give you some more motives. If the command alone doesn't move the needle for us, let's look at some whys. Here's the first thing, because forgiveness reflects God's character. If you're a Christian, you understand God's agenda. God is about his glory going on display everywhere, all the time. His glory going on display, and most specifically, his glory going to display in your life by transforming your dead heart 
to a living heart that worships him. God gets glory from that transformation. And he's turning us into and transforming us into the image of his beloved son. We know this, right? That's what he's doing, okay? And if we are ever to see anything at all or know anything at all of God, it's through the lens of his character of love and forgiveness. If God isn't loving, if God isn't forgiving, you and I are still blinded and dead, right? Just like Ephesians 2 says, dead in our transgressions and sins. But because of his nature, because of his character to forgive and to love, you and I now see. That's the reality of this gospel story, okay? When we forgive other people, we are the mirror of God's character of love and forgiveness to a world. We get to reflect that image. That's in us. That's, that's in us. And I know when I'm saying these things, there's a part of you, even if it's a hurt part of you, that's saying that's, that's, that's true. That's right. I'm not saying it's not difficult, but you know it's true. Um, and so of this forgiving part of us, when we do it to those who offend us, we're proving that we haven't forgot where he found us. That's the dog heap that he found us at, lost and blind and dead. And his forgiveness brought us to life. Second reason why we are to forgive, because forgiveness is freedom. There's a fuel for unforgiveness. It's called resentment and bitterness. It's the gasoline that that fire can burn with, right? And I, I know you know this, but as, as much as you want justice for the wrong that's been done to you, bitterness and resentment puts you in a prison, not the other person in a prison. You know this, right? It just does. It affects you. It affects you in every possible way. Physically, it adds stress to your life. Not that that's the most important part, but it certainly does that. It affects us emotionally because it's dictating how you feel. You can't even walk into a room. You've got to move to the other side. It's controlling you that way. And spiritually, the most important part of this is that it's one of the greatest barriers to spiritual growth and effective prayer life. It just is. So let me try to prove to you how this kind of happens. Resentment and bitterness are such an anti-God reaction to sin against us that the spirit of God to the child of God makes it priority one in that child, okay? You're tracking so far. So it's so not like God, not like the picture of God, not like your experience and how he's treated you, not at all a reflection of who he is. So when we get to the place of bitterness and resentment, the spirit of God says, okay, that's what we gotta work on. And he makes it priority one. Everything is a story. Everything's a reminder. Every sermon sounds like they're preaching your story, right? You've heard that before. All right? You cannot believe how much energy it takes to resist the Holy Spirit when he's telling you to forgive. So much so that my guess is those of you who are like maintaining bitterness have probably a pretty pathetic prayer life. Probably don't like to go to the word much because all that does is turn on the conviction. I don't like that. Probably um, don't have a lot of open-handed service because it makes you feel bad. And so you just check out. You spiritually shut it off in order to war with God about the issue of forgiveness. Make sense? Who's in prison? You are. God wants to bless you and honor you and reveal you and to give you and shape you into the image of Jesus. And because of some version of hurt that you've experienced, and I'm not downplaying it, I'm just saying in comparison to the offense against God, you're holding this bitterness and you have to push against God to keep it. You're in prison. Let me tell you another reason why. <clears throat> because forgiveness opens up the power of God's grace to the person that has hurt you. And that's a big deal. Every believer in here knows what I'm talking about. Let me prove it all. Let me ask you a question. What was the effect of God's grace on you? 
If, if we talk about the moment of your conversion, not just kind of the ongoing nature of God's grace as you experience it, what was his effect on you? His grace. Now, I have to confess something. When I heard about grace, I didn't understand it very much at all. It took a lot more sin in my life to figure out grace, okay? Um, but I can tell you this. It is the one subject matter of, of my faith that crushes me more than anything else. It's hard for me not to cry every time I talk about grace because I understand my failures in this, okay? It is the greatest thing I've ever heard, all right? Here's the reality of why we forgive. Because when we extend that kind of grace to those who hurt us, it can change and transform them. I have uh, been married, I counted this morning, so I wouldn't be wrong. I think my wife's here. I've been married 31 years, I think. Uh, who? <clears throat> I swear to you, it's an unlimited number of times I've hurt her. Just like every married couple in here. I mean, we're experts at hurting the ones we're closest to. And, and there have been times where it's gotten pretty hairy, you know, and and I've had to go to my wife and after coming to my senses and seek her forgiveness. And I got to tell you, in some of those places, it's transformed my joy. My version of living life with war against my wife doesn't equal my happiness. Forgiveness, like when she grants it, did. It, it transformed not only my joy, but my relationship with God. He got much, much more close. I got much more sensitive. And, and it transformed my relationship with her. And I think you probably have experienced this somewhere in your life where you fix something. Something that's broken has been restored. And it makes everything exponentially better, doesn't it? If you want to care, if you want a reason why to forgive, there are people out there that you're holding a grudge or a bitterness or something against. And it can be a part of their transformation. That's another motivation as we reflect the image of God. Okay, let me give you... Um, let me give you some realities of forgiveness, okay? Because there's a lot of things said about it, the subject matter. So let me give you some, some other things to consider. Forgiveness isn't contingent on the attitude of the one who hurt you. If you're writing that down, you better write it in bold letters. Forgiveness is not contingent upon the attitude of the one who hurt you. Let me remind you of some passages we already read, and I'll emphasize my point here. Paul said in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3, we read it already, but let me say it again. To emphasize, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So, question, how did he forgive? You know this, right? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, when all of his persecutors and his murderers and all the mockers and revilers at his feet, he said, Father, what? Forgive them because they're clueless, paraphrase. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. They can't see. They don't know. So, Here's what I want you to see. This is an in spite of forgiveness, not a because of forgiveness. It's an in spite of for forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon said this specifically about that quote of Christ where he says, what is this forgiveness of Christ? You know how he exhibited it in his daily life. 
He was much tried, but he was never provoked to wrath. Both by friends and by enemies, he was made to suffer. Yet he neither accused the one nor the other to his great father. He never reviled those who reviled him, but patiently yielded to their malice, giving his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off, off the hair. His disciples he gently rebuked, but he never spoke to them in anger. A life of forgiveness was crowned by, by his dying prayer for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved his them and enemies. He lived for his enemies. He died for his enemies. He was an incarnate gentleness, the mirror and paragon of forgiveness. By the way, just before we get judgmental about those at the base of the cross, we are his enemies without Jesus. Do you understand? Every one of us are at war with God, at enmity with God if he doesn't move towards us and it's an in spite of forgiveness, not a because of forgiveness. This Christ-like forgiveness it wasn't this kind of extension that came when I came to my senses necessarily or didn't wait for me to be sincere or consistent or to keep a promise that I would never burn him again. His forgiveness came in spite of the reality that I would fall, not, not once but a bunch. In spite of who I am, his forgiveness came, amen? Do you understand this, right? In spite of that, I'm forgiven. Here's another reality of, of forgiveness. It is not realistic that you'll forget. I don't know if you've heard this, but it's out there. You know, forgiving is forgetting. And so that, that kind of, I guess, parable sits out there and makes me wonder if I'm doing it right, if I can remember, okay? Let, let me clear this up because I think I know where it comes from. Isaiah the prophet was talking about God's version of forgiveness and he said this in Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins any longer. That's the truth of of how God treats us. And so we do the math and say, okay, if God forgets and I'm to forgive like him, then I need to forget. But I don't forget. So what do I do? What does it mean? We better understand this. What does it mean for God not to remember our sins? Is it, does it mean that God, there's some things that God can't recall? Like he's all powerful and everything, always was and always will be, lives outside of time, can do anything he wants to do, but every time he can think about me, he goes, Tim, ah, can't recall. Don't remember what a knucklehead he is. No, that's not what it means at all. There is a big difference between losing his memory and making a choice. And when it comes to sin and sinners who come to him in faith and repentance, he makes a choice for us. That's what it means to remember our sins no more. Now let me make just a little bit more clarity to this. The wonderful gospel of Jesus that we all receive and believe by faith simply means that he... He doesn't allow who we are or what we've done to stop his relationship with us. He comes at all, all cost to push back our rebellion and our enmity and our war and our blindness and our deadness. He doesn't let anything stop his relationship with us. He goes all the way to the cross. He bears up under that sin and he writes a new narrative. And we've talked about this so much. You should have this like memorized. The wonderful narrative of my sin fully imputed to Jesus on the cross. Every bit of God's righteous wrath that I've deserved by my failure was poured out and emptied on Jesus. Every bit of that justice has happened and he's imputed his righteousness to me and God writes a new narrative. He sees me as a holy child. He doesn't necessarily forget that I'm a knucklehead. He just believes in his son as much as I'm supposed to. He knows that he is my righteous robe. That's the reality of this gospel. That's the truth of what we're claiming to believe, okay? It's not that he doesn't remember. It's that he makes a choice. Okay. Let me give you another 
reality of forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't a destination, it's a journey. And those of you who've heard a message before and ran out to forgive, let me get your head handed to you in a basket, you need this. Forgiveness isn't a place you go one time and you're done and you've crossed every you know, T and dotted every I. This is something you need every day. Now give me an illustration. Like I said, 31 years ago, I was sitting in my dad's church. So I would have been uh, 23, maybe, something like that. And I was a young married man, and my dad was preaching. And, uh, and it wasn't like he, he, it was the best sermon I ever heard, but he was dealing with forgiveness. And God was poking me in the heart. I, just like I told you before, as soon as he started, the face came in my head, like, that's the guy. I don't want to think about the guy. Couldn't help it. The Spirit kept dragging me back to the subject. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. So, um, doesn't happen all the time, but that time, at least, I said, okay, God, I'm going to obey you. So, I went home. Right after church, went home and went up to the bedroom and grabbed the phone. It's back when we had phones in houses. And I grabbed the phone. And I called this person in my life. And I said, hey, man, I just want you to know that I've been bitter against you and resenting you and actually hated you for some time now. And... Um, like your sin against me just like threw me over the edge and I, I just want you to know that I'm recognizing my attitude and my demeanor as sin and I want to ask your forgiveness and he kindly said good glad to see you came to your senses <laughs> wasn't very helpful so I started hating him again <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make is you don't you don't get to arrive at forgiveness it's not how this works we are, although transformed by Jesus, becoming like Jesus, we are sinners wrapped in sinful flesh. And we will, we will hurt each other. That's the reality of it. And we need to be prepared to forgive, not once, but every day. Always keeping short accounts with the people that wound us um, and hurt us, right? There's, a, there's an experience like that that... Uh, I think it's a little foreign to us, hard to get our head around, but you need to understand this, that our ability to forgive isn't hanging in the balance of the possibility they'll never hurt again or be hurt again. Like, you don't need to engage in this idea of God's version of forgiveness in the world at the possibility that it'll stop all the pain. It's not going to happen. You just need to be more realistic than that. I had a gentleman who, uh, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, uh, came new to the church, right? He was in the back, and I do what I do sometimes. I walk around and shake hands and say hi, and I knew he was new because he had a suit on. It was kind of <laughs> obvious. Um, and he began to tell me that he was checking out churches because the last church let him down. And I said, okay, okay, I'm going to let you down. I want you to know that before we even start. Um, we are a church saved by grace. We believe in Jesus, but we're a bunch of sinners. Not like we want to hurt each other. Not like we make it a part of the agenda or anything. But somewhere in this, you're going to have this expectation. I want to deliver here. And you're going to be hurt. And you're going to check out church. If that's what you want to do, go. Just keep going. And maybe you'll find what you're looking for. But if you're okay with us dealing with how God says to deal with it by forgiveness, we'll be all right. This is how this works. When I do something I shouldn't do, and you say something to me and remind me, and I say I'm sorry, we're restored and the gospel is presented. That's what we do. So if you're expecting this thing to not wound you, then you shouldn't join a church because sinners do that, right? That's, that's a reality. So get your mind around this, that forgiveness is a, is a journey, not a destination, okay? 
Let me now finish with just a few thoughts. I, I want to be as practical as I ha- can be with the few minutes I have left, but um, let me give you some tools, I think, to help us do this and maybe kind of push into it a little bit more clearly. Um, first tool, I want you to focus on the sovereignty of God and not your hurt. I want you to focus on God's sovereign control over the details of your life and not your pain, okay? Let me use an illustration that you're familiar with. I'm certain of it. Genesis uh, 45 through 50 tells the story of Joseph. Joseph was just minding his own business and was hated by his brothers. His brothers sold him into slavery, considered murdering him first, and then decided the best was to get him out. And they sold him into slavery, and he's in Egypt, and he goes through a really difficult time there. And if you've followed that story or read that story before, when there's a famine in the land and Joseph's brothers show back up in Egypt and they're terrified that payback is in their future, right? It was Joseph that reminded them very basic truth, right, about God's sovereignty. I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and God sent me ahead of you to preserve you. That's why, why God did this. Joseph could forgive because he could see God working. Even, and this is so unbelievable, even in his brother's sin against him. Now, I could tell you many stories, many stories in my own life where I felt like I've been burned by Christians, like a brother in Christ who said this, didn't mean that, lied about this. And it came to a huge expense, in, in my, at least in my mind. And, uh, but I have the advantage now, looking back 20 years, and I, I can calculate what the what-ifs you know, the what ifs, if, if I could have avoided that pain, if I could have gone around that and missed him altogether, and what would it have been like? And all I know is even in the midst of that kind of offense against me, God was doing something else, something bigger. And I can see that, right? And so if you're worried so much about your hurt and your pain, and you don't believe that God is writing a story, a better story, then you're going to miss out a little bit on what he's doing. Let me give you another tool. I want to remind you, and you need to remind yourself that you're related to the one who hurt you. And I'm not talking about physical DNA. All sinners. Right? I used to write a list in my mind, not on paper, um, other things I would never do. Because in my youthfulness, I thought there were things I could do to avoid the things I would never do. The older I am, I have a different list. And it's like I could do anything. Apart from the grace of God, that's me. I could think any thought, I'd go anywhere unless God doesn't stop me. Because in my nature, apart from Jesus, all of those twisted, evil longings and desires kind of lurk. Depending upon how close and how much I believe at the moment in time, it kind of tells you how strong I am about those things. I don't have the list of never anymore. I don't judge people like I used to because I know what I'm capable of. You and I, when we're dealing with somebody's sin, just look at them and remind yourself, we are just alike. Because if I was in your shoes, I might do the same thing. Might help you a little bit. Here's the third tool for us to kind of help us get better. Remember that forgiveness is an action, not a feeling. It's an action, not a feeling. I need you to hear me on this. I I am not saying that you're never going to feel forgiveness. Like it's never going to feel right. That's not what I'm suggesting to you. I'm just saying that the action comes first. Somebody has to pick up the phone. Someone has to extend the hand for the handshake. Someone has to write the email. 
And I'm telling you, Christian, it needs to be you because forgiveness is an action. I I promise you somewhere down the road, the feelings might catch up. But preeminently, it is how we behave towards the sinner who sinned against us. I'm extending my hand. I'm making the phone call. I'm reaching out to you. I'm going to start this restoration. That's what I'm going to do. It's not a feeling. So if you're waiting around to feel warm and fuzzy, check it off your list. It's an action. Here's the last thing. I kind of set this up this way, that this uh, issue of forgiveness is like Mount Everest to us, and I, I understand that. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then we need to ask God for help. And that is not the last thing we do. It's the first thing we do. Because forgiveness isn't natural. It is supernatural. This kind of forgiveness is supernatural. Naturally, I am wired for revenge. By the way, I'm really good at revenge. My most creative moments come when I'm thinking about revenge. Okay? That happens to me. That's what I'm inclined to do in my flesh. But what God's doing and the help of the Spirit living in and through me, um, I think the power of this forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that Jesus talks about, is not only possible but inevitable to give us the strength to follow through on what we already know to be true. Sinners like us, I think this is a truth, sinners like us who've been forgiven should be great at forgiving. Should be. Now, let me finish with this. I know, at least I I think I do, what I'm asking you to consider today. I know that some bad things have happened to some of you, some like horrible things. Some of you have experienced unfaithfulness in your marriage. Some of you have experienced slander. Some of you have experienced hatred from someone or abuse from someone. And so I'm not downplaying those things. I'm I'm not suggesting that they aren't difficult. Now, I know asking you to consider forgiveness seems like that Mount Everest. But if you consider the pile of sin God relieved you from, If you can see the person, the offender, through the lens of the gospel, like grace, scandalous grace, the kind of grace that offends everybody, the kind of grace that Jesus offers people like us who have nothing to offer and nothing to do. All we bring is our sin and inability, and he says, I'll cover that. And he grants you forgiveness, and he grants you righteousness, not of your own. That mountain is why I forgive. Not because people are easy to forgive, but because I'm hard to forgive and he did anyway. Do you understand? That's the reality. So this uh, holiday season might be one of those years or one of those seasons where we, uh, and you might experience this, where it's an intense time of loneliness or a reminder that things are messed up and broken. Here's what I want, want you to do. Forgive. If there's some broken thing out there, some broken relationship, What he's calling us to isn't complicated. Forgive. And here's the reasons why. Because you were forgiven. Because you're in prison if you don't. Because they need the grace of God. And watch this. The glory of God gets to go on display in your life and in the world around you. And it's worth it. Make sense? All right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, your faithfulness to us and your forgiveness to us in our sins. I pray, God, that we would reflect that forgiveness to those who wound us. I pray that we experience the restoration of those relationships, even this holiday season, and that it could really truly be the most wonderful time of the year. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.